you were to go into a courtroom, as courtrooms are now opening up again, and you were to be in a trial that was taking place, it probably wouldn't be long before you would see a lawyer stand up and with some dramatic flourish say, Objection, Your Honor! Hearsay. Hearsay. What is hearsay? It's pretty much what it sounds. You hear someone else say something. It is hearsay. Now, do you know why the lawyer would be making that objection? Is because in our system of the law, you, as a general rule, cannot testify in court about what someone else said outside of court. The judge will say, no, you, you don't testify about what you heard someone else say. Why not? The reason is because we don't think that is very reliable. We don't think that is very trustworthy. Because when you hear someone say something, you may hear what they say, but you don't know what they meant necessarily by what they said. It's open to interpretation. So who is the one who should testify to what was said? The person who said it. Why? Because then the lawyer can say, what did you mean? They can say, did you mean this or did you mean that? So in ordinary, our law says that you cannot testify to what you hear someone else say. Do you know there's an exception? Well, there are many exceptions. Do you know what one of the exceptions is? When someone is dying. When someone is dying and they say something about the cause or the circumstances of their death, that person, what they said, is now admissible in court, and someone can get up in court and say, when they were dying, this is what they said. Why? It's because death brings with it, the, the impending death of someone brings with it a kind of reliability, doesn't it? When someone thinks that they are dying, what they say has a special meaning to us. This is why we are so uh, familiar with the last sayings of people, the last words. Books have been written about famous last words. Why? Because when someone is dying, we get a sense that their words are a window into their soul. They are giving us a preview of what we may go through one day when we know we are dying. And we wonder how we will approach it. The dying words of someone are windows into their soul that give us a peek at what they are thinking and believing in the last moments of their life. Now, why do I start with a brief legal treatise? It's because you might have been confused when you were reading Hebrews 11, 20 through 22. Again, to recap, we have been going through this chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. We started at the very beginning with understanding this description of what faith is. Faith is the substance. It substantiates things that we hope for. It's like proof to us. Why? Because there is a conviction in our hearts that it is true. Not only does it substantiate what we hope for in the future, it is evidence, it is proof of things we cannot see. As we have talked about, faith is that organ of sight. It helps us see things that other people can't see. 
it helps us experience the proof, the reality of things that other people don't believe are real. They don't experience as real. In other words, faith is not just something we think. It is not just something, a passing thought that goes through our mind. Faith is something real. It brings substance to our souls and we live by it. As we've been focusing on Hebrews 11, almost everyone, the majority of these verses that we read about are people who by faith acted, by faith spoke, by faith did. Because when faith brings reality to our soul, we do obey. When faith brings the substantiation of the future that God tells us, we live in that dimension, in that reality. It changes the way we live. Last week we focused on Abraham who had received a promise of God that Isaac would be the source of his descendants. Isaac was the promised son. And now the command of God says, sacrifice Isaac. And the promise of God and the command of God come into complete conflict with each other. What do you do? Faith says, if God's promise and God's command seem to be in conflict, I obey God's command and trust him to carry out his promise. Even if it takes raising my son from the dead. That's faith. But after that pinnacle, did it surprise you this morning when suddenly we look at the life of Isaac? Now, if I were to ask you this morning, what is the pinnacle of Isaac's faith? Would you have said, Oh, I know. That time when he was deceived by his youngest son, Jacob, and gave the blessing to a person he didn't intend to give. That was the pinnacle of Isaac's faith. Would you have said that? I doubt it. When, if I were to ask you this morning, what is the pinnacle of faith in Jacob's life? That deceiver himself. Would you have said, oh, I know what it is. Do you remember that time when he blessed the sons of Joseph? Do you remember that time when he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff? That certainly was the peak of Jacob's faith. I doubt it. I doubt it. Or Joseph. We read about Joseph here in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Oh yes, the peak of of Joseph's faith. It wasn't when he was in that When when he was sold into slavery, when he was in that Egyptian jail falsely accused, it was that time he made commandment concerning his bones. What's going on here? I've said it before, whenever scripture doesn't appear to make sense to you or when you immediately come to a verse with questions, dive deeper because that's oftentimes when you're going to find some rich truth below the surface. You just need to bring your pickaxe. You just need to do a little bit of digging. And that's what I'm convinced is going on here. What is going on in each of these three examples of faith that I've decided to bring together into one sermon this morning? What is true of each of them? What is true of each of them is that they were three men, the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, who were about to die, or at least were under the impression of impending death. And in their impending death, they trusted the one who had given them promises and spoke reliable words of God's truth to their descendants. The title of the message this morning is By Faith, Seeing Past Death. 
by faith, seeing past death. There are some of you, perhaps this morning, that are in the position of one of these men who say, I grow old, I know not the day of my death, as Isaac said. And my question and my challenge for you this morning is, will your example of faith to your descendants be the example of faith of these men? And there are others of you who may not feel in any sense that your death is imminent or impending, and yet your encouragement today is to look forward to that day, to begin preparing for that day right now so that the impending time of your death will merit this same kind of example of faith. By faith, seeing past death. Now, we're really going to look at this today in two sections, in two points. And I know that will be very concerning and distressing for those of you who are used to three points coming out from this pulpit. But, of course, the skill in in knowing every rule is when to break it. Is that not true? So today we will break our rule of threes, and we will have two points for our consideration today. The first is that we're simply going to look at these three examples of these men. These three examples of faith that may appear at first blush to to us to be not very important or not very significant. And secondly, we'll look at three encouragements for each of us. Three encouragements from these three examples. Let's start with Isaac, shall we? Let's start, first of all, here in Hebrews 11, and then we'll go back to what this passage is commenting on. This is a commentary to our Old Testament text and dig in there. Notice with me in verse 20, will you hear of Hebrews chapter 11? By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, who is Isaac? We just were introduced to Isaac last week. He was the promised son of Abraham. Abraham, this faithful man, a friend of God, one who was one of the most significant figures in all the Bible. Isaac was the promised son. And Isaac experienced what we saw last week, going up, being tied to the altar, seeing his father's knife over him, ready to kill him, hearing a voice from heaven, being delivered, seeing the ram come into his place. That would have been a walk of faith for Isaac too, wouldn't it have? And now here, Isaac is an old man. And Isaac blesses his two sons, Jacob and Esau, concerning things to come. Let's go back, shall we? First of all, to uh, to Genesis chapter 25. Keep a finger, if you will, or put a, a little piece of paper or whatever you have in Hebrews 11. We'll come back here. But let's start here in Genesis chapter number 25. This is... When Jacob and Esau are born. Interestingly, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, also has been unable to have children. And we read here in, in, in Genesis chapter 25 that Isaac goes and specially prays to God, please give my wife, Rebekah, children. And we see here in verse 21, the Lord was entreated of him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. She had twins. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. Now listen to what God says to her. Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. 
Did you get that? The older one is going to be subjugated to the younger one. The younger one of the twins is going to be the predominant one. And they come out, and of course, Esau is the older one, and Jacob is the younger one. Now look at what Scripture says about these two. Verse 27, the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. One of them was your idea of a man's man. Out in the field, the hunter knows how to use weapons. A man who knew how to live off the land. And the other was a homebody. A mama's boy. How do we know he was a mama's boy? Because the Bible tells us. Look, verse 28. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. Dad's. If you had a son that knew how to grill steak like a five-star chef, you'd probably love him too, wouldn't you? Well, that's what Isaac did. He loved his, uh, Isaac loved Esau's venison, but Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, parents, you've got to be really careful about playing favorites. You've got to be really careful because you're going to see in this story what a desperately horrible thing happened because Isaac and Rebecca played favorites. And this is a very important lesson for us, but there's a deeper lesson here. Notice again, what did God promise? God promised that who was going to be the lead, the predominant one, Esau or Jacob? Jacob. Who did Esau love? Who was his favorite? Esau. Who did Isaac love? Esau. Now you see the conflict. God had promised that Jacob was going to be the predominant one, and Esau and Isaac, because he loved the venison, preferred Esau. Now let's go ahead to chapter 26. Excuse me, I'm sorry, chapter 27. And verse 1 tells us, And it came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he was blind. He called Esau, his eldest son, and said unto him, My son. And he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold now, I am old. I know not the day of my death. See, he was looking at his impending death. And he said, Now therefore take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver and thy bow, and go out to the field and take me some venison, and make me savory meat such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. Now you need to understand what a blessing was to these patriarchs. A blessing was not, my children, I wish you well. No. A blessing was sending them with the promises that God had given dad. A blessing was not just a general, I hope things work out for you. A blessing was, my son, this is what God has promised for you. You need to come into that. Who is Isaac planning to give the blessing to? The one that God had chosen or the one that God hadn't chosen? The one that God hadn't. Now we're not going to read through all of the verses, but what happens here is the mama's boy gets with his mom, Rebecca. Rebecca says, son, your dad is about to bless your older brother. Let's have a scheme. And what she does is she has him go run, get a couple goats from the flock. She whips up the savory venison that Isaac loves. She has Jacob because he's not a very hairy guy like his brother is, his, his brother. Now, it's a really remarkable thing that he would be hairy enough that you could put goat skin on. 
And that would be him. That's, that's a hirsute fellow right there, I'll tell you that much. But this is what happened. Jacob took the skins and put them on his arms and put them on his neck. And so he comes into Isaac who is blind and he can't see. And he, he begins to talk to him and he said, that's Jacob's voice. But Jacob says, no, it's not. It's Esau. And he says, come here. And he smells and it smells like, I don't know exactly what it smells like, but it smelled, it smelled something serious. It smelled like, like animal, like earth. And he says, that smells like Esau. And he feels, and he feels the hair. And he says, that is Esau, and he blesses him. Now listen to what he says when he blesses him, will you? Look at verse 27, what he says to, to, to Jacob. He said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. Therefore, God, give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee and blessed, he, blessed be he that blesseth thee. Do you know what this blessing is like? It's like a similar to the blessing that God gave Abraham. This is passing down God's blessing from Abraham through Isaac and now giving it to Jacob, even though Isaac thinks he's giving it to Esau. Well, of course, Esau comes in. The gig is up. Jacob is out with the blessing. When Isaac realizes that he has been tricked, verse 33 tells us, he trembled very exceedingly. He was shaking. That wasn't his plan. His plan was to bless Esau. But notice what he says. He said in verse 33, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison? Jacob, and brought it me, and I have eaten of all before thou camest, and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. And he goes on to give a secondary blessing to Esau, as Hebrews 11 said, concerning things to come. Friends, what is the example of Isaac? The example of Isaac is a man who approached death and things didn't work out like he had expected. In fact, he was cheated. He was tricked. He was lied to. He was deceived by the one he loved. And yet in that moment, he did not try to say, all right, let's reel back that blessing that I have given Jacob. His response of faith was, he shall be blessed. I wonder if in that moment that came back to him what God had told Rebekah before those children were born, that the elder shall serve the younger. And in that moment of faith, he submitted to God. And he said, God, you were right. Jacob will be blessed. Remarkable example of faith. A man who didn't have this blessing work out the way that he intended, but was ultimately willing to allow God to work through it as he saw fit. Secondly, let's look at Jacob, shall we? Here is this deceiver, this man Jacob, who lived his life always trying to get ahead, always with a scheme, always with a plan in order to, 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 to get ahead. You've seen, you've known those people probably. That person at work who's always willing to cut corners in order to get by. May we never be that kind of person. Jacob was. What happened when Jacob came to die? Let's go back just for a second to Hebrews 11. Notice what scripture says in verse 21. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph... 
and worship leaning upon the top of his staff. This is strange. Go ahead to Genesis 48, will you? Genesis 48. Let's see this story briefly. Jacob has been reunited with his son Joseph. He has come into the land of Egypt where Joseph is second in command. He is the right-hand man of the Pharaoh of Egypt. Jacob is in a place of prosperity. He lives out the rest of his days around his children. And notice verse 1 of chapter 48. It came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. And Israel strengthened himself. Jacob strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. You can picture this old man lying in bed. And he hears that his son and his two grandchildren are coming to him. And he sits up. He's ready for this moment. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee, and I will make of thee a multitude of people, and will give this land of thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee into Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. What's he saying here? He's saying, Joseph, your two children are going to be as my sons. Friends, do you know if you fast forward into the land of Israel after God's people had come into the promised land, there's no tribe called Joseph. There are two tribes for Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob, by faith, was looking ahead to God's promise, giving a double portion of blessing to his son Joseph and aligning effectively Joseph as his firstborn, as the dominant portion of his strength with two sons that would be called after Israel's name, after Jacob's name. And in this wonderful passage, which we don't have time to read entirely today, Jacob assigns the blessing of God on Ephraim and Manasseh, his grandchildren, his grandsons. Now friends, what is this example that we have of Jacob? This man who before in his life had been a schemer, a manipulator, a deceiver, always looking to get by with a plot. Who is he now? A man who at death is completely content with how God has appeared to him and blessed him. You heard that in what he said. God appeared to me. God has blessed me. God has done all these things. And now is pouring out blessing, is speaking the blessing of God, the promise of God to his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, testifying of what would come in their future. What about Joseph? What about Joseph? Again, right down the line, Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, these patriarchs. Go ahead to Genesis chapter 50. After Jacob dies, Joseph continues to live in Egypt. He's one of the most prominent right, citizens in the country. He is the second in command. He has wealth. He has fame. He has prestige. He has power. Look at what verse 23 says. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. I'm at the point of death. 
And God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. That's where he gave commandment concerning his bones. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You say, what on earth do we draw out of this? Who was Joseph? At the time of his death, he had everything that a human being could look for from a material standpoint, from a prosperity standpoint, from a power and prestige standpoint. And what is he fixated on at the time of his death? Is he looking back? Is he looking back and saying, oh, look at everything that I accomplished in my life? No. What is he doing? Is he looking forward and he's saying, my sons, my descendants, you are going to be prosperous in the land of Egypt. You are going to carry on my name, carry on my reputation. No. He looked ahead 400 years. He said, your, your descendants aren't going to be here in Egypt. Why? Because God will visit you and you're going to go to your land that was promised to you. And oh, by the way, when you go, carry my bones. Why did Joseph care about where his bones were? Because his testimony of faith was God's promise to Abraham was not to be in the land of Egypt. It was to be in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. And I want my final resting place, at least in this earth, before he was resurrected. I want my resting place to be where God's promise to my family was. I'm not an Egyptian. God had a promised land for us. By faith, he looked ahead. Now, what do we glean? as three encouragements for us. You may look at this today and you may say, I don't see impending death in my future. You may say, I don't have descendants to bless. You may say, God has never given me a specific promise for my children. I can't prophesy what's going to happen to them in the years ahead. How am I supposed to take this and apply it? Well, let's step back for a moment. What is this passage in Hebrews chapter 11 trying to convince us of? What is it actually saying? Do you remember where we started in, in Hebrews chapter 10 in this series? At the very end, verse 38 says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if my, any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. What is the point of Hebrews 11? It is to say, don't draw back from your faith. Hold on to your faith. Keep walking in your faith. Because the faith that saves is the faith that continues. It is not the faith that draws back and gives up. That's the whole context of Hebrews chapter 11. It's an encouragement to continue, to persist in faith, to endure in faith. And now, here, the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is holding up three examples of men who, in light of their impending death, are walking by faith. Friend, how do you want to end your race? How do you want to approach your impending death? Will it be like these men in strong faith testifying to the promises of God? You see, the first encouragement that I want to suggest for us this morning is that faith affects my pathway toward death. 
Faith changes the way I live out the golden years of my life. You all have come across someone before who in the age of their life, the twilight of their life, they become hard. They become bitter. They become angry. They're grumpy. They're crabby. They, They get sore. They get weak. They run into physical challenges. And they're just mean. Not these men. Not these men. Why? Because they were walking by faith. Because the hard years of their life, the sunshine that baked down on their life, didn't make them uh, moistureless, these kinds of crabs who didn't want to look ahead or be uh, sensitive to God's promises, to his testimony. These were men that had seen the goodness of God, and it softened them as they got older. It didn't harden them. You know, I saw an example of that recently this year as we put a little, we have a little garden around our house, little flower beds that we have. And usually we put down mulch every year, but this year we were late. And there was a portion of this flower bed that had no mulch. It was just flowers. And we had drought this year, right? We didn't have a lot of rain. And I remember coming to that piece of ground and as we were preparing finally to put the mulch in it, the ground was like rock, The dirt had just been baked by the sun, no moisture in it, and it was rough and it was hard and hoeing it up was difficult and challenging. But you know, there was a part of our flower bed, a different part that we had mulch in, and I couldn't believe the difference. When I went over there, I pulled a weed out and I was just down underneath it, and I said, this this soil is soft. It's moist. Life can live here. It's easy. I thought as I prepared for this sermon, what a difference. For those whose lives have been baked by the sun, it strips them of their moisture, of any kind of softness in them. It brings them to bitterness. And then there are the people who I thought of Psalm 91, he that abides in the secret place, he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And there are some people who've had the mulch of the Almighty filtering everything that they do in their life and their soil is moist, it is rich, it is soft and it is sensitive to the leading of God. Friends, as you approach old age, which soil are you? Have you been abiding under the shadow of the Almighty, walking in faith like these men? You know, in Hebrews 11, there's an interesting picture here where scripture tells us that Jacob worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff You say, what does this mean? The picture here, I think, we see in Genesis 47 of Joseph worshiping God in in constant remembrance of his weakness, causing him to lean upon the top of his staff. I just want to give you one encouragement, friends, especially those of you who are aging and seeing your body break down and the weaknesses that come into it. Would you be like Jacob worshiping as you lean on the top of your staff? As you see bodily challenges come into your life, does it make you grumpy? Does it make you mean-spirited and nasty and, and saying, God, why are you doing this to me? Or are you like Jacob, softened and sensitive to God and saying, being able to worship even in the midst of your physical weakness and your physical distress? This encouragement to us is to recognize that faith affects my pathway toward death. Here's the second encouragement that I think this passage brings out for us is that faith affects my perspective for life 
after death. Faith affects my perspective for life after death. And what I don't mean here is the perspective that you will live after death. That's a wonderful faith, isn't it? I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand on the earth at the latter day and that though after my body worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That is wonderful faith to know that you will be resurrected. But I'm not talking about that kind of faith. The faith of these men was that a living God would continue working after they died. Do you know one of the biggest problems for us, friends, is that sometimes we are deceived to think we are irreplaceable. That God desperately needs us. It's why we fight against death. It's why we fight against weakness. God needs me in this world. In fact, one writer, Christian writer that I followed, made a wonderful point. Why do we see these scandals affect Christian leaders? Christian leaders fall in this blatant and open and public manner. And yet when it, the story comes out, there were all these red flags beforehand. All these horrible things that should have been addressed and never were. Why does that happen? It's because this writer said, and so rightly, we are deceived into thinking that person is such a good preacher, God needs them. That person has such an effective ministry, we can't hold them accountable. God needs them. It's too important. God does not need anyone. An all-powerful God can make the rocks cry out in praise of him, if need be. Friend, God does not need you, and he certainly does not need me. This is why it is so important, friends, as you approach the day of your death, as you age are you trying to put in place the people around you to carry on God's work after you're gone? Are you investing in your children and in your descendants to recognize that God's not going to stop working just because you pass on into eternity? That God's promises went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph and they're continuing to go down generation after generation after generation Listen to this wonderful poem by a man named William Walter DeBolt. He said, death is not a period bringing the sentence of life to a close. Death is not a period. Like the spilling of a moment or the dissolution of an hour, death is a useful comma which punctuates and labors to convince of much to follow. God's work in this world does not halt with a period when your life comes to its close? Are you living your life that your death will simply be a comma, promising that God is going to continue to work after you are gone? In other words, what faith says is a conviction that I am utterly replaceable, that God's work will not end with me, and that my life's work is to lay down the seeds that God will use in the future to bring glory to his name. Is that the way you're looking at life today, friend? Is that your goal and purpose in life, that your death will simply be a comma, that God will continue to be glorified when you are gone? There's one more encouragement that I want to make this morning. Not just that faith affects my pathway toward death, not just that faith affects my perspective toward a life after death, but faith affects my priority for a legacy after death. Faith affects my priority for a legacy after death. I think all of us know that we will leave a legacy behind. 
after we're gone, there will be a legacy that we leave. What will that legacy be? I was struck by that this week. I went to the golf tournament that's in town, the pro golf tournament, and some of the best golfers from, the world, or from around the world are in Minneapolis this week or up in, up in Blaine playing golf. And I went, and I was watching a little bit of golf with Lars, and I decided to follow around someone I actually knew, one of the professional golfers who's on the tour. I went to school with him. And we weren't best of friends, but we had a class together. We knew each other. We played basketball a little bit together. And I hadn't talked to this man in, in 14 years, I think over 14 years. And we were walking there, and Tabitha was with me, and Lars was with me, and we're just following him. And Lars went up to give him a fist bump. In the middle of a round, it's this big professional golf tournament. He's one of the top 100 or so players in the world. And he looked at me, and Tabitha said, I, he could, I could tell he recognized you. And the next time he comes back, I'm still standing there. We're coming toward around the next hole. And he looks at me and he recognizes me. He says, hey, dude. He says, how's your basketball game? And I said, okay, he did remember me. Because we had played basketball together. And I was roommates with James Dickey. You know James Dickey. He was on the golf team. I got to know the golf team. They knew me as a basketball player. And you know, as I prepared for the sermon, I thought, you know, did I want my legacy with that PGA golfer to be a basketball player? Now, I didn't know him all that well. I don't know how much more of an opportunity I could have had. But you know, it's simply this. All of us are leaving legacies of how we'll be remembered. And how do you want to be remembered? Do you know what, how a lot of people want to be remembered by their children? By how much is in their estate when they die. By how many earthly or worldly opportunities they gave. Do you know how these men wanted to leave behind a legacy? Of the faithfulness of God and the promises of God for them. Joseph had everything. He had everything to pass down to his children. Political power, he had that. Material resources, he had that. Riches, wealth, he had all of that. What was he focused on when he came to die? My descendants, you, you, you listen, God's going to visit you and you're going to come out of this land. Your place is not here in Egypt. You're not, your place is not with material resources or political power. Your place is in the promises of God to your great-grandfather and to what he's going to be doing in the life ahead. Friends, what legacy are you leaving for your children? I think back to my grandma, my father's mother. I don't know that any of you knew her. She was a wonderfully sweet woman. You know, I don't have a one dollar of her money. But do you know what I do have? A legacy of the way she died. You can ask my mom. I remember my mom telling me that when my grandma was approaching death, she said, this already sweet woman who was so saintly, so given to the worship of God, just it, it made her go into her Bible even more. Colon cancer was robbing her of life, and yet she just wanted to be in her Bible because she knew she was about to meet God. And she, her life which was only softened and continued to radiate the joy and the contentment of the Lord as she approached her death. Like I said, that's the legacy that she left behind of the faithfulness of God as she approached death and the testimony to the promises of God. And then I think of Psalm 71, verse 17 and 18. Listen to this and wonder, I wonder if this is the testimony in your priority as you approach death. O oh God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto, to this point, have I declared thy wondrous works. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, 
Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. That's the priority of one who's truly walking in faith. To say, God's work's not going to end with me. The deposit that I want to leave with my children, with my grandchildren, with my descendants after me, is of the faithfulness of God and the testimony of what he has done in my life. Friends, do you want to influence your children for good? Do you want to influence your grandchildren for good? We've talked about this when it comes to the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel, the gospel is not simply about a theological system that Jesus forgives you of your sins. That's a wonderful part of the gospel, but it is not all the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is alive. That he has been resurrected from the dead. That he one day will be your judge. That he is willing to give you resurrection power right now to change the way you live and ultimately to resurrect your body from the ground to be with him eternally. And the deposit that our children, our grandchildren need to hear from us is not a theological system first and foremost, though they need to be taught. What they need to see is that there is a God who is alive, that there is a Savior who is real, that there is a divine being who has power to change their life because he changed yours. That there is a testimony of a God who has worked all things together for good in your, in your life and who will live out those same promises in the life of your children and of your grandchildren. Friends, what legacy do you want to leave behind? Is it the legacy of faith in Isaac, in Jacob, in Joseph, who when it came to die, were willing to look beyond death and see the continuing work of what God had promised. Friends, your words, when you approach death, will have incredible significance. They will reveal whether your life is a life of faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the examples we see from your word. Father, I know that as I look out on this congregation this morning, there are some that perhaps are nearer death than they would know. And there are some that may appear very far from death. And yet, Father, you want us to prepare with a life of faith to recognize that one day we will die. We will leave a legacy behind. And to begin preparing right now for what that legacy will be. Let's pause with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. The most important legacy, friend, that you can leave behind is that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That you did not draw back to perdition, but you believed to the saving of the soul. Friend, have you ever trusted in Jesus Christ as a living person? Have you given your eternal destiny to him? Have you believed in him for your salvation? If not, I pray that you would not leave here this morning before you take care of that issue, before you accept him as Lord and Savior. 
But Christian friend, wherever you are on your pathway to death, whether you are far away or whether you are near, may you see these examples and be challenged by faith to live differently today than you were yesterday. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, your faithfulness and promises across all generations. May we live and walk in the reality of who you are to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.